0: we're going to do is we're going to read all of chapter 5, and we're just going to read the first verse of, of chapter 6, OK? So Exodus 5, and then um, looking at the first verse. You can stay seated this morning. Um, just settle in. Take a deep breath. Ask the Lord's Spirit to be with you, to open your eyes, open your heart to hear this word. Exodus 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, uh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, but Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, the, well, the God of the Hebrews is met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with sword." But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. And therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. And so the taskmasters and the foreman of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw." Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. And so the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault isn't in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out. Of this land. This is the word of the Lord. I'll uh, let me begin by telling you a little bit of an embarrassing dad story. Wouldn't you like to hear one of those? Yeah, do. Yeah, make you feel better. I've got plenty. Um, every year, I right before school, somewhere right before school starts, I take my oldest daughter on like a little dad dad daughter pilgrimage, as I call them. We uh, just set a, a day aside or a day and a half or two days aside to kind of get away. And I try to discuss life, try to talk about what I feel like God is up to in our world and how good he's been to us. And I discuss like what I want for her and, you know, some of the goals that I have for her, some of the things I want to see her develop this particular year in school. So it's a real special sacred time. That I have with her, um, and so this year we do something different each year. This year we went and stayed. Uh, we did a night at Houston Woods, the lodge, and so uh, that evening, this was for just this is Friday night. So uh, after some swimming and some hanging out, and all of that, we went into Oxford. Where are my Oxford folks at? Yeah. All right, yeah. We did a little SDS pizza. Yeah, it's not as good as y'all say it is. <laughs> So we did a little SDS uh, pizza picnic on Friday night, Um, and as you probably know, with everything kind of getting kicked off and started in Oxford, it was crazy Friday night. You know what I mean? You you guys were probably there. Uh, It was wild. And so uh, I was like, hey, you want to get some ice cream? So we went and parked, and I parked probably a block or so from high, if you're not familiar with Oxford, I'm sorry. Um, I'm not all that familiar either. So, I didn't go to school there. So, we were about a block from High Street or so. I parked, um, and there are cars everywhere. I mean, it was just slamming on Friday night. And so, I parked the car. We go, we walk, we get ice cream and all this good stuff. And so, <laughs> we're walking back to the car, and you know, I've, we've just got these massive ice cream cones, and she's just licking her way uh, through it. And I. I don't know what I did, but I lost track of my car. <laughs> and so I'm like, I, I, I'm like one blocker. So. I'm like, we, I, I thought it was right here. And so and there, there are cars everywhere. And so I'm like, well, I guess I just, I need to go one block further. Well, I go one block further and it, no car. And so then I'm like, that's no big deal. It's just around this corner. You know, my daughter's just behind me like, it doesn't care. <laughs> And then you know, next thing, by the third or fourth block, I'm starting to get a little bit like, where is my car? And it's it's getting dark at this point. I can't see where my and there is just like in Oxford, you gotta know, there's just cars like lying down the street, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And so, and this is dragging out. So, and then I, I can tell like at this point, I'm starting to get like my blood pressure is getting a little wacky and I'm starting to get a little nervous I'm I'm like what is going on and she's just straggling way behind me just her 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 pace is not (laughs) up to to my speed she's got these little flip-flops on and she's just consumed with the ice cream and I'm so I'm starting to grumble and get frustrated and because I'm like I'm literally gonna have to call the cops and be like I am an idiot dad and I can't find my car can you help me find my car and it's getting later and later. And I'm thinking, of course, I'm like, you know, what any of you would be thinking, why am I dumb? But then also I'm thinking, of course, God, I, this is, I'm doing a good thing. Are you serious right now? This whole night's going to be ruined if I can't find my car. You know? I was embarrassed. And this is true. My seven-year-old kid... <laughs> My seven-year-old kid was like, (laughs) she's like, Dad, doesn't your phone just tell you where the parked car is? And I like open it up, and it did. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, and she's like, ha, ha, you know, she's laughing. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And I was like four blocks away, you know? I'm like, what in the world? Uh, SDS pizza and ice cream just melt this brain right here. It was gone. Um, so anyway, needless to say, it was kind of a strange, and the whole drive home, I'm just like, man, this, is, this was ridiculous. you know. And to be honest, a little embarrassing because not only did I lose my car, I noticed that I was grumbling and kind of getting frustrated with her because she wasn't going fast enough, as if so somehow this is her fault, which it wasn't. My Friday night frustration is, 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 is trivial. It, it just is. And you know that. And I know that. In the grand scheme of life, nobody got hurt except for my pride. That's it, right? But it does point to a deeper truth, you know, it, it, that sometimes right in the middle of doing something that you, you deeply feel is good, that like you deeply feel is the right thing to do, right in the middle of it, it goes terribly wrong. And you feel incredibly, not just disappointed, but you feel angry about it. Because you're like, well, I don't get it. Like, this doesn't seem to be fair in this universe, you know? When I'm trying to be obedient, I'm trying to do the right thing, and it's just getting worse. Unexpectedly wrong. The irony of all of that just leaves us shocked, bitter, angry. And then that kind of anger, that kind of frustration, boils over and then it just kind of spills out onto the people around us doesn't it it just spills out onto our spouse or our friends spills out onto our neighbors our coworkers that sort of a thing that of course is what we're seeing go down for Moses and the leadership of Israel and that text that you just read that bit of the story where God is, you know, has these plans of rescuing these enslaved people. He's raised up this rescuer, this redeemer named Moses, and his brother Aaron, because Moses is kind of scared, and he doesn't think he can speak very well, and he's empowered them to go do this thing. You know, and that's what they're experiencing, except for the stakes are a lot higher than a little bit of wounded pride in a melting ice cream cone. The people in this situation are actually experiencing real loss Um, They're under heavy burdens Um, It truly must have been a blow for them Moses has just received the pep talk of a lifetime We covered this last week God has spoke to Moses out of a burning bush It's wild, it's crazy And out of this burning bush, he's telling him to go rally to go gather the elders of, of Israel back in Egypt and explain to them that God is speaking now, that He's heard them, He knows their cries, He knows their sufferings, and He's going to do something about it. He's He's moving on their behalf, and so I can't imagine what Moses felt. You know, and we covered this last week of him having this protest five times. He protests and he doesn't feel good enough for the job, or all these different things that he's dealing with, all the what-ifs, and and God deals with him in an an amazing way. But, you know, God is abundantly clear with Moses. I will be with you, and I will see this through. And that's the kind of summary version that I could give. And I can imagine, despite all the insecurities, all the what-ifs that were swirling in Moses' head, at this point, as Moses and Aaron go to have a conversation with the elders and go to have a conversation with Pharaoh, they've got to be beaming with confidence. I mean, wouldn't you? If God spoke to you out of a burning bush, they had to be filled with confidence. And so with boldness, they, they go to the elders like they're supposed to, and they get them on board. They, they, they explain that God has spoke. He's going to do something. And the elders like bow their heads, and this is the end of chapter 4, verse 31. They bow their heads, and they have a worship service because they're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And so everything's looking good. And then they go to Pharaoh with boldness, which is the part we just stepped right into the middle of that story and read in chapter 5. And I'm going to imagine, like you can imagine, like they probably walked into that room, that palace, with swag. Right? Like, we going to tell you what's up. Right, Pharaoh? Like, we just heard from God. So they do this, and they make the request to release the people so that they can travel out of the wilderness out into the wilderness, sorry, and set up this kind of like ancient tent revival, if you will. That's the request. And then, bam, not only are they denied their request to send the people out, they experience mockery, kind of, and they experience Pharaoh plotting evil, making things harder and worse than it was before. See, Pharaoh's not only releasing them, not releasing them, he's now making the work harder, but by denying them the materials, the straw, they, they, their job was to mix straw and mud, make bricks, and they had to make so many bricks per day so that they could build these storehouses for the expansion and protection of Egypt. And so now he's keeping the quota the same as before, but he's increasing, or sorry, hes making, keeping the, the quota the same, but he's reducing the materials. It's kind of like how like when we got the iPhone, we thought, oh, work's going to be easier. And we just decided to work more. The same thing. But that's a whole other sermon about work and the relentless pursuit of it. But this is the same thing that Pharaoh does. He just keeps the quota the same, reduces the material, and it just slams them and burdens them even heavier. And so again, right in the midst of seeking obedience, right in the middle of seeking something good... It goes terribly wrong for Moses and Aaron and the people. Now, here's the thing. If you're reading the story straight through, so like if you were like a, a Bible in a year kind of person and, you, and you're going to go Genesis 1 and you're just going to start reading. If you were doing that and you were reading it straight through carefully, you would realize that as much as this probably was disheartening for Moses and Aaron and the leadership of Israel, it actually shouldn't feel hopeless It shouldn't feel hopeless to them. And and here's why. Uh, God has told, he's already told Moses the order of events. And this is the problem with how we meet every Sunday, like just on Sundays, and we have to kind of try to remember what took place. If you turn in your Bibles just a couple pages back, just go back left, just a couple pages to chapter 3. You can read this again, like how God tells him to go to the elders, and then and he explains it in this way. This is what God says. This is uh, 3, verse 18, to Moses. He says, they will listen to your voice, the elders of Israel, and, and then you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, now notice this. In verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. We'll cover that next week. After that, he'll let you go. They've been told up front, right? They've been explained how this goes down. And so, really, what you've read in chapter five shouldn't be like as the reader. If you were reading it straight through, you'd be like, "Hey, man, guys, this was relax. This is exactly what's supposed to happen." I mean, has Moses and the leadership done what many of us do? Like a bit of selective hearing. You hear the good part and you ignore the bad. It's like when my daughter, my daughter's come to me and say, "Hey, can I go play with my friends?" I'm like, "Sure." First, clean your room, and they start running out the door. I have to grab them in the driveway. No, oh, no, yeah, you didn't hear. Hello. Like, there's a whole other thing. There's another thing about this. Like, you, you're not listening to the whole thing. I don't know if that's what they're doing. I think that's what many of us do when we open the Bible. We have a bit of like selective reading. We read the parts that we really love, the parts that fit our personality. I remember hearing a story of a, a professor, Scott McKnight, tell about how um, at, at each school year. He has his students come in, and he has them fill out this thing at the beginning of the semester where it's like, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your personality, your likes, your dislikes, you know, something. And then he has them say, tell me about God. And he says, the funny thing is, is how strikingly similar they are. We tend to make God in our image. (laughs) It's funny how the God we think that exists is always a little bit like us. Votes like me, talks like me, likes what I like, doesn't like what I don't like, <laughs> you know. So we kind of have the same kind of selective listening, selective reading. So I don't know. I'm just not, I'm not sure what's happening inside of their heads. It's possibly that that's what's going on. Either way, I think it's a fair question, fair question that we naturally ask, and that is this, why, though, God? Like, why the slow, drawn-out, painful process? Why not just, like, give the victory right away? Like, why not have Moses and Aaron go in and be like, not just tell Pharaoh to release the people, but say, Pharaoh, enough. You're done. Have a timeout. Or something. And, and then at work. Like, why does it have to be this illustrious display? Why does it have to be this melodramatic scene? And I think that that's a fair question. And as much as I just kind of opened a can, I'm not going to talk about that. (laughs) Because here's the thing. If you can, please, shelf that question, which is a totally legitimate question, and I think it's a question that you should honor and wrestle with, the deeper philosophical whys of life. But if you can, shelf that question for a moment, and instead... Try to read the story of Exodus on its own terms. Like, try to engage in Exodus the way that the author actually, I think, wants you to engage with the story. In other words, what I'm trying to say is is that I don't think that the author of Exodus is trying to deal and traffic in philosophical answers to your philosophical mysteries and questions. I think the author of Exodus is trying to show and teach you spiritual realities, like theological realities, ways of understanding how to live life in the present, knowing that there is this God out there. The wording of the whole scene in in chapter 5 that you just read, it it shows us that embedded into this world, the world that they're living in and the world that you're living in, there is this kind of cosmic battle of good and evil. If you really notice and read carefully, um, chapters 5 and 6 too as well but we didn't get into it that much but in chapter 5 it, you, you see this like it, the author and God really it, it, they're building the drama, the tension it's coming, it's, there's like kind of a, a rising climax to this whole thing there's this deeper struggle here than just a tyrant king you know Pharaoh and, and this stuttering maybe or speech You know, has this, this man, this shepherd that has kind of this speech impediment, there's something deeper going on here This is nothing short of a battle of sovereigns, if you will. Now, you might think Pharaoh and God are not on the same level. Well, they're not, and that's theologically accurate. But bear in mind, in this day and age, in this time in history, Egypt represents full-scale worldly power. And Pharaoh is seen as divine in their context. And so you have to imagine it in that way. So this is not just some economic or political dispute. This is spiritual war. That's how the author wants you to see it. I can show you. Just notice the initial response that Pharaoh makes in verse 2. Who's the Lord? Would I obey him? I obey someone? Excuse me? I take orders? No, no, no. I'm Pharaoh. I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I'm not going to let Israel go. I mean, is he being arrogantly condescending toward God? It's possible. It's hard to read into the rhetoric a little bit. I don't know. Is he genuine? Like, is he like, I don't, what Lord are you speaking of? This Yahweh? I don't, I've never heard of him. I don't know. Either way, we can't, know. I mean, but he's just, he's obviously, he's flexing. What he sees as his ultimate authority. He doesn't answer to anyone. And there's this fascinating play on words. If you, and you kind of have to put the chapter side by side. There's this play on words that are pointing to a kind of power struggle over God's people and God's creation. Notice this. It's fascinating. God's words to Moses in chapter 4, okay, verse 22 and 23. I'm going to have you jumping around a little bit, okay? We're going to nerd out just for a little bit, so hang in there. Chapter 4, it says this. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, "Here are the words. Thus says the Lord. Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Now, contrast that line, okay, (laughs) with the taskmaster's words that were given from Pharaoh. This is chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work, now the root word there of work is, is the same as serve will not be reduced in the least. So here's, you put those two things together, side by side, all right? You still with me? Put them together, and it's as if God is saying, read my lips. These are my kids, these are my children. Let them go to serve me. And in response, Pharaoh is saying, read my lips. No, they're mine, and they serve me. So what the author's doing for you in chapter four, chapter five, and it extends into chapter six, is he's setting up a kind of like, uh-oh, these sovereigns are about to battle. Now, we'll get into some of that next week. That's what the plagues, because that's what y'all have showed up for Exodus anyway. You just want to hear about the plagues. But th- this, that's the showdown. And what I have for you this week is just the setup. But this is what the author is trying to set up for us. And that response, by the way, very clever here. If you like to read about power dynamics, the the response of creating harder work that Pharaoh's giving, it's not random. That's not a random decree. That's not him just being like annoyed and just kind of like filming a temper tantrum. No, that's a calculated power strategy. 100% that's what that is. Look at it. He's sowing discord between God's messenger, Moses, and the people that he's he's trying to protect. Notice Pharaoh's strategic choice of words in chapter 5, verse 9. He says this, Let heavier work be laid on these people, the men, that labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. Who's lying words? Moses's. What he's doing is, is he's slandering Moses' to Moses' own people that he's trying to free. He's sowing discord. And it sadly works, doesn't it? Did you read, we read the end of that part. The Israelite foremen go to Pharaoh because they're getting beat and whipped and they plead their case to Pharaoh to no avail. And afterwards, they read this, we read this, and this is uh, verse 20 and 21 in chapter five. They met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. And as they came out from Pharaoh, They said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. Civil war. Pharaoh's plan is exactly, he's plotting this out. He's like, I'll just get them to hate each other. I'll get infighting. And it's a very effective plan. Now, here's the thing. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff we can talk about there, but just If you're still tracking with me, please stick with me just a couple minutes, a couple more minutes, and let's really think about this. Summarize what you have here, the parts that I just covered. Let's just summarize it, and I'll do it for you. You ready? You have one. You have a power struggle of good versus evil. Now, again, bear in mind, Pharaoh is just a kind of stand-in. He's just a human stand-in for evil, metaphorical Evil. Okay, cosmic evil. So you have a power struggle of good versus evil. Two, you have a struggle, and the struggle that's going on is over God's children and his desire to see them flourish. Three, you have a twisting of words to sow discord and distrust between God and his own people. Four, you have a curse that has, has people deeply enslaved in harder, more burdensome work. Does any of that sound familiar? Any of you? Is can you think of a, a story in the Bible that involved a struggle between, <laughs> over God's creation and God's children, sowing discord, twisting words, curses, burdened work, you think of the story? Anyone brave enough to throw it out there? Genesis 3? If you're thinking Genesis 3, if you wrote Genesis 3 down in your notebook, you get an A-plus for a thing called biblical theology today. Genesis 3 introduces this whole thing, right? Genesis 3 is this cosmic struggle between God and it's not a pharaoh, it's a serpent, right? It's It's Satan himself, and that struggle involved the first children, Adam and Eve, and, and, and their freedom and their flourishing. And he does it by not making them do anything, right? He just twists the words. Did God really say that? Is that what God said? I don't know if he's as good as you think he is. And so he twists the word. He sows discord, distrust, and then he introduces them into a life of burdensome work and shame. Shame, shame, shame. See, on a deeper level, what I'm just trying to point out is this, um, that Exodus 5 isn't a scene, the scene that you've read in Exodus 5. It's not this completely unique story. It's actually a continuation of an ongoing, much deeper story, this ongoing war that Satan, we don't talk about Satan a lot around here. Maybe we should. More, I don't think, as Lewis, C.S. Lewis talks about, we sh- I don't think we should be preoccupied with him, but we also should not ignore him. He exists. He is real. And Satan is hell-bent on bringing destruction to you. To you. To me. Make no mistake, he, he is absolutely... I mean, it... it if he, if he can't destroy you outright, he's just going to get you busy thinking that he doesn't exist. He has been hell bent on destroying this, God's good creation and God's children from day one. And he will not stop. And he is known as the deceiver, he, he is known as someone who sows discord, who creates fighting. Who lets us just eat each other? He just sets it up. He creates distrust and he leads people further and further away from God and deeper into burdens if he can have it his way. That he wants to introduce you to a life where you think you're going to get more freedom and you buy that until you realize one day you wake up and you're not free at all, you're a slave to your own desires, and it's destroying you. Now, the, the incredible news, the unbelievable helpful news, the hopeful news is that, that if we continue to read not only the, the Exodus story, but the rest of the Bible, we'll see that well, well, the God will not be outmatched. He, like, not at all. He, he is heaven-bent on redeeming, reconciling rescuing his entire creation and reconciling everything back to himself and and, and into this place of peace and and trust, he will see it through. And unlike the Israelites, you know, who got to see a lot of God's unbelievable, loving power and control in their lives, you you get get to know that he and see much more, right? eventually you get to the New Testament in this, in this story and you see the ultimate stroke of power. You see the, the ultimate, like you see, uh, it will not just come down, um, God won't just come down like a, in a Moses. It'll be God himself. There will be no more stand-in. It'll be God himself, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, will stoop down into this corrupted creation. He'll be, take on the flesh. He, he, he'll become weak and frail just like us. And he'll deliver this death blow, that's how the New Testament thinks of it, this death blow to evil by letting it have its way with him. That's so why Paul wrote in Colossians 2.15 that when Jesus died on the cross, quote, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's the clever Cosmic twist in the cosmic war of ultimate evil and good. What Satan meant for evil, God used for your salvation. It's the gospel. What Satan meant for the saddest blow in human history the execution of God's own son. What he thought was going to be the most humiliating thing to do to truth into goodness, into beauty. What he thought he was doing was actually opening himself up to public humiliation himself. It's the most beautiful, ironic twist that you could ever think. That's the gospel. But what are the implications for you? Like, why am I talking? Because trust me, I'm fully aware that I entered into this whole week and this weekend going, I mean, last sign, I go, I'm going to be talking about spiritual warfare this weekend. Like, pray for me. It's not something I do very often. But I think there are massive implications for you and for me. And here's my best take on it. And you might have other ones, and that's okay. So if you like mine, take them. If you don't, hopefully you can come up with your own. I'll begin by this way. Uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner says this, and he's talking about the burning bush, which we already covered. He says, the burning bush was not a miracle. It was a test. God wanted to find out whether or not Moses could pay attention to something for more than a few minutes. When Moses did, God spoke. The trick is to pay attention to what is going on around you long enough to behold the miracle without falling asleep. There is, listen to this, there is another world right here within this one whenever we pay attention. Now, I've been thinking and wrestling with this a lot, and and I've mentioned a few times over the last couple of weeks in this story of Exodus that I want us to learn how to pay attention that, that God is moving and there are little miracles right underneath your nose all the time that I just don't think we see because we don't look for it. We're not paying attention. And today, I want to just look at the other side of that and say, without totally freaking anyone out, but every day right underneath your nose, there's a world of evil. If we're actually paying attention. There is evil. Cosmic evil. And we would do well for having re- being people that recognize that there is evil. I mean, although God has delivered a death blow to evil in this world, realize, friends, evil still is at work. In our neighborhoods, our schools, in, in, in politics, in, in, in homes and families and bedrooms, the, there's evil. Driving the horrible des- the destruction of families, the destruction of lives, the, destruct- the, the total destruction of things. I mean, if you think, I'm just telling you what I see clearly in the Scripture, even the New Testament, post the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is Paul in Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 12. Finally, be strong, the Lord, and strengthen of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Peter will talk about it in 1 Peter 5. We'll talk about Satan being like a roaring lion, prowling around, seeking someone to devour. And he says, be watchful. Uh, Peterson in the message, I love how he puts it. He says something like, he would love to catch you napping. Just thinking he doesn't exist. You know, as postmodern Christians living on this side of the Enlightenment, I, I just think we might find that many of us, there's a whole lot of people that are called Christians that attend church, that we just don't really speak of spiritual warfare anymore. We, we, we don't speak of these things. I know that there are small tribes and camps out there that, or large ones maybe, that, that do, but my guess is this. One isn't one that is speaking a lot about it, and I'm not. I don't speak about it all a lot either. And I think so at times. I think when I when we discuss things like this, cosmic evil, this battle of good versus evil, these sorts of things, I think for many of us, because our lives might, by the way, might. So please don't take any offense to this. Might be pretty good most of the time. And pretty comfortable most of the time. And so I think because of that, we just think this kind of stuff is silly and superstitious. Because we don't live in some third world country where we see outright genocide. But I can tell you, as one who has seen people in downtown Middletown, people, the homeless, that I've seen things, usually at night, (laughs) where it is nothing short of evil, spiritual, evil. It exists and it is real. The New Testament Christians did not think of life in such Pollyanna naive terms. They knew it existed. They rightfully understood that invisible evil exists in the world and it shows up in visible forms like violence, greed, dishonesty, abuse, neglect, exploitation of human beings. This is exactly what Pharaoh is doing. You know, the first Pharaoh, if you noticed, he's fearful that these multiplying people are going to somehow revolt. This Pharaoh, that's not his concern at all. He's just like, this is free labor. I'll exploit them. It's evil. And then, of course, just the plain, hopeless hearts that crop up now and again. And they just want to give up on life. You see all of that in Egypt. You see it in Exodus chapter 6. We didn't read it. But it says that eventually these people, quote, have a broken spirit about them. They're just broken. Friends, life can be relentlessly difficult sometimes. Maybe not for you yet. But sometimes it can be. But when it's difficult or seemingly worse even in the midst of striving to do what is good, trying to be obedient, and it is so hard that you are tempted to hopelessness, you are tempted to distrust, you are tempted to grumbling, and letting your anger spill out, that is 100% the work of evil. And so here's why this is so important. The more, I think, the more we are aware the more aware we are that the deeper spiritual realities are at work in our everyday lives in our communities, I think the more alert we are to the condition of our own souls. If you know what's at stake, you will take your soul so seriously. <laughs> like you will not be casual with your soul, with your children's soul, with your friends' souls. You will see that there is so much at stake. And that reality is that every day in the little moments, and of course there are big moments, like monumental moments in your life, where you realize that you have a choice to make, particularly when it's really difficult. You have a choice. I've been reading Jonathan Sack's book on Exodus, Covenant Conversations, and it's a great book, but he says this, and embedded into this quote is, is, is an excerpt taken from Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. He says, Many things influence us, our genes, our parents, our early childhood, our race, creed, culture, class, and the persuasions and pressures of our environment. But influence is not control. Causes do not compel. It was a survivor of Auschwitz, the late Viktor Frankl, who discovered in that nightmare kingdom the truth to which he subsequently devoted his life. He said, quote, The Nazis tried to rob us of every vestige of our humanity, but there was one freedom they could not take away from us, the freedom to decide how to respond. We who lived in the concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstance, to choose one's own way. When our friendships, your friendships, when your families disappoint you, when you're disappointed, deeply frustrated over these things, and it tempts us to do and say destructive, dehumanizing things, will we catch ourselves in that moment And see deeper things are at stake and that we have a choice. When our marriage is driving us to despair, will we see that deeper realities are at stake and that we have a choice? When our selfish desires are tempting us to hurt our loved ones and neighbors, will we see that deeper realities are going on and that we have a choice? We have a choice. Whatever setbacks we hit, when our churches disappoint us, will we throw up our hands and say enough of these people in disgust and run away from the church and from Christ? Or will we see that deeper realities are at stake and say, no, I have a choice. I can decide to do something different. Whatever you face, whatever sufferings you encounter, Will we give in to despair and to add and even add, heap on more evil into this world? Or will we do something else? Will we grumble like the ancient Israelites? Will we sow more discord in our anger and in our frustrations? Which, by the way, will be the continual theme of the Israelites. They'll just grumble, grumble, and grumble, and grumble. Because it's hard. They'll let their anger and their bitterness spill out on all of the people around them. Or will we trust in God's good character? Will we trust in him realizing that he's not given up on us? He is fighting evil. And he has invited you not only into a life where you start to recognize that grumbling is not helping. But he invites you into participation And pushing back evil. Like he's invited us to participate in it. To say, no, enough of this. I don't want to add to the evil. I want to push back against the evil. And what does that look like? Man, it looks like a lot of different things that I think you should think about and reflect upon. I know this. I think it looks like confessing sin. For starters. I think it looks a lot like offering up our grieves. Because we're not just sinners. We're also sufferers. And so we offer these things up to God and say, I don't want this whole thing to own me, to be my entire life story. I want something else. And so we offer up our griefs. I think it looks like turning to him in prayer and saying, God, please keep me from evil. Keep me from evil. Keep my family from evil. Keep the church from evil. Keep this community from evil. Show me what right choices to make in the midst of my struggle. In communion, each week, we reflect on the fact that in this Paul, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He reminds us that the night Jesus was betrayed, he chose not to add to the evil. He gave them a cup, and he gave them bread, and he blessed the evening. He was hospitable. He was kind. And he was offering them this ritual so that they could remember that Jesus has paid the price for our evil. He has taken it on himself, and he's given us an opportunity, and he's given us choices to trust him and to say, we don't have to add to this anymore. We can be people that are different. But that doesn't come up through our own power. It comes through him. This bread representing his body broken, this cup representing his blood shed. And so before you come forward to this station or this station to take part in it, I just ask for you to reflect, reflect on the things that you've been dealing with, what spiritual warfare you might be dealing with, or your family is dealing with, or your friends are dealing with, and offer that stuff up to God. If you're a Christian, you're invited to take part. If you're not, please take the time to pray in your seat, to ask questions, to come up after the service, and we'd love to answer anything you have. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we give you thanks. And we are reminded that there is a war going on around this. There is a war in our own hearts at times. Sometimes it's just to try to hold on to hope. Sometimes it's just trying to hold on to a sense of assurance that you are in control. But this reminds us that you always are in control. It is slow coming sometimes for us to see it. It is slow for us to be filled with confidence, but, Lord, keep us persevering, keep us hanging on, and ultimately, Lord, keep us from evil. Let us not add to the burdens and the evils of the world. Let us help bring freedom to it. We love you. We praise your son. We thank you for the work he's done on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.